Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Helen, it never ceases to amaze me how much content there is out there on the topic of collapse. I spent some time today reading back through messages we've received on Twitter or on Patreon or through Reddit or, or email, and there are so many people that have recommended so many books, so many videos, articles, studies, just, just so much, YouTube channels on the topic of collapse from various experts. And I wish that I could go through and just all day, every day, consume all of that content. And the reason I bring that up is that one of those pieces of content is an, actually another podcast. It's called Crazy Town. And I've only listened to one episode. Today was the first day I, I tried it out. And I was actually really impressed. And one thing that really impressed me about the pilot was that they talked about something that we frequently have talked about and noticed as well. And it's that there's something that's oddly soothing or satisfying from hearing other people talk about collapse. So you're saying that as the host of a podcast about collapse, when you go listen to a different podcast in which they speak about collapse, to you that's comforting or, or does it just help you feel less crazy? It, does it help reinforce what you believe is going to happen in the future? Does it help you feel less alone? Like, what is it about that that is beneficial to you? Well, I personally haven't felt alone on this journey just because of all the research I've done. I know that there's so many other people out there that feel that way. But what I thought was interesting as the host of a podcast, listening to this other podcast talk about it, is, is that they were expressing the same thing that's been expressed to us by our listeners, which is how listening to the podcast has helped them to feel less crazy. Because maybe in their personal lives, they feel so alone that nobody else understands 
their anxieties and fears of the future. They get maybe ridiculed or ostracized for talking about it. But by being able to listen to someone else talk about it, they feel like they're not crazy. Going back to this podcast in the pilot, they were talking about one of the hosts was saying he was flying on an airplane and was looking out the window and, and actually noticed a fire in one of the engines of the airplane. He said there was a small like explosion and a fire that was building on the wing. And he pressed the, the call button for the flight attendant. And she came over and said, sir, what's going on? How can I help you? And he said, uh there's a fire on the wing, <laughs> this engine, there's a fire. And she said, okay, sir, no problem at all. I'll bring this to the pilot's attention. He likely already knows. Oh, and by the way, can we just have you shut your, your window shade there? The movie's about to start. And he was just blown away by how nonchalant she was about it. Um, why is no one else freaking out on the plane? She was acting like he was crazy for, for bringing this to her attention, but please just lower your shade so no one else can see. And he kind of likened that to how many of us feel about this big plane that we're on that seems like it's going to crash and nobody cares. I'm just picturing, I don't know if you ever watched like the old classic Twilight Zone episodes. They, they actually talk about this in the in this pilot. They talk about the gremlin on the wing. Of the <laughs> yeah, William Shatner saying there's a thing on the wing. And I used to love watching all those black and white Twilight Zone episodes. That episode... If you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it does such a good job of painting the frustration of somebody who is seeing something that's dangerous, but nobody else will believe them. Like he looks out the window, he sees it there, but every time he tries to get somebody else to look at it, it's suddenly gone. So I haven't seen it. Um, I know the line very well, only because I've seen Ace Ventura like 15 times. <laughs> There's something on the wing. So yeah, I, I that's awesome. And they do talk about it and joke about it a lot on this pilot episode of Crazy Town. But he basically likened it to everybody having their shades down in life, right? Like everyone's distracted by something or everybody just doesn't want to see it. And so they pull their shades down. And they each expressed sort of this different time in their lives that they've experienced that same thing of feeling so frustrated of just wanting to scream what's going on, but just feeling like nobody cares or will listen. And they talk about a, another gentleman, his name's Ken Ward, and there's actually a documentary about him where this gentleman goes to a therapist because he's so frustrated with the fact that people around him are ostracizing him, they're making him feel crazy for the things he's talking about. He's so sure of these things, but he's wondering maybe there's something wrong. So he goes, he talks to the therapist, and the therapist asks him, how do people react when you bring this stuff up? And he says, you know, well, they, and this is not word for word. I don't remember the exact verbiage, but they treat me like I'm crazy. They don't believe me. They, they don't see this as an issue. And he basically says, the therapist, he basically says, well, typically when everyone else feels that way about something you're saying, then you're probably the one in the wrong. And they get him on like a medication to help him, you know, just totally making him feel crazy. And it amounts basically to gaslighting. It amounts to people feeling gaslit. And it's not always intentional. You know, if everyone around you is not freaking out about it, it's not like they have something against you or whatever. It's just the status quo. But in the meantime, we are intentionally being gaslit by you know, big oil companies and corporations who are greenwashing and, and doing all these different things, you know, paying all of this money to try and shut down the idea that what they're causing is, is serious environmental issues. 
So I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, I did just spend several minutes here basically doing a commercial for a different podcast. So I guess if we lose some listeners who are going to go listen to the crazy town now, that's fine. But it, it was good. But anyway, all that's to say there is something sort of vindicating in hearing other people talk about something that you care a lot about, especially when so many people around you don't want to hear it. Yeah, that makes me think of a poll that we did a handful of months ago on Patreon. It said, why do you listen to Breaking Down Collapse? We're trying to gauge the primary expectations our listeners have and the drivers for listening each week. The options were to learn something new, to stay caught up on current events, or it's just nice to hear two people talking about collapse without sensationalizing it. And I guess there was a fourth option as well that was other. But I think, Corey, you and I were both surprised that 71% of the people who responded chose that third option. It's just nice to hear two people talking about collapse without sensationalizing it. Yeah, I know. I definitely expected there to be a larger percentage of people saying to learn something new. You know, we were trying to come up and we still are coming up each week with a new topic to, to talk about, to teach about, trying to provide, you know, additional information on. But only 10% of people selected to learn something new. Yeah, and there was some good commentary that took place uh, in that setting. So we gained some additional insight, but I think there's a, a major aspect of that being that people just want to know that they aren't alone and know that it isn't something totally out there and sensationalized. It's nice to hear a voice or two that are not alarmist, that are just trying to present facts. And so when you talk about that example from this podcast you listen to, where the guy sees a flame growing on the wing of the plane, it's like you want to at least have people around you acknowledging and seeing that out the window. And not necessarily panicking, but at least if they recognize that there's a problem, not only is there comfort in knowing you're not just isolated, but it's also comforting knowing there's a collection of people who want that problem to be solved just like you do. So after last week's episode, where we talked about the mental health crisis in the U.S. and globally, we thought it might be a great time to do a sort of follow-up to our previous episodes on coping. Kellen has always done a really good job at the research on these episodes, and I'm really excited to hear more about what he has to teach on the topic. Before we dive into that, though, we thought it would be cool to read maybe just a few reviews from listeners. Some of these are reviews, some of these are comments or messages that we received from listeners that highlight exactly what we've talked about in the introduction to this episode, which is how listening to this content has helped improve their mental health. So here's one from someone that reached out to me on Reddit. They said, hey, Corey, I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of weeks and wanted to let you know I'm really enjoying it. I've never enjoyed podcasts, but yours is the first one that has intrigued me to the point of listening almost daily. I was already collapse aware before listening, but it's been interesting and oddly soothing to learn the specifics behind why our species is waning. I'm thankful that you and Kellen created this resource for people to find some answers to some difficult and confusing questions. Keep up the great work. I responded and said, that's awesome to hear. I'm always surprised by the number of people that tell us exactly what you just said, that somehow it's soothing or that it helps their mental health. I hope that continues to be the case. He said, I think it will. And it makes sense people say similar things to you. More often than not, the scariest things in life are that which we do not fully understand. So having a resource like your podcast helps people understand and come to terms with accepting the reality of our species and how we function as a society. So I thought that was really awesome. Um, just that line where he says that, more often than not, the scariest things in life are that which we do not fully understand. 
Yeah, another comment. I'll just skip kind of halfway down. This person said, you've actually made my anxiety of collapse a lot less than what it used to be. Understanding what's going on and embracing everything it entails does wonders for mental health, my mental health at least. I've lived my life focusing on facts, numbers, and details, but was never able to see the bigger underlying picture. Like an ant walking across the surface of a painting, I was missing something and I felt it. Your podcast brought together all those unfocused thoughts and feelings and layered them into an image I could finally see. I just want to say thank you for your work. So I like that both of those comments are calling out this idea that when you can feel that something's wrong, but you don't quite understand it, that's much scarier than when you can actually see the full picture. And there's a certain sense of, I think, control in being able to know why you feel a certain way and know why you're seeing the things that you're seeing around you. Yeah, well said. Um, There's one other one here. It says, hey, Corey, your podcast has been really helpful for my mental health. I've been talking about many of the issues you have discussed for years now and have always been called crazy by others. Knowing that there are other people out there who share my severe concerns has made me feel accepted for the first time ever. Keep up the great work. Another said, having become collapse aware over the last few years, I've been surprised at the disbelief and indifference to the subject exhibited by many of my friends and family. To be fair, I don't blame them. It is, of course, a heavy subject, and I'm sure they'll become more open to it as the crisis increases in visible magnitude. Either way, this has left me with a sense of alienation from my peers. Your podcast has helped me with this, as you both come at the subject from a critical perspective, and you have essentially helped me feel a bit less crazy. So thanks. So just a couple there basically saying that using the same words, they feel like they're being called crazy by their peers or friends and family. But having a place to speak about it, people to talk about it with or just listen makes them feel less crazy. Yeah, and that's kind of echoed in one of the reviews that we received that said, I came across this podcast through a random comment on an Instagram post last night. The first episode put into words for me everything I've been feeling. I didn't realize there is a whole community of collapseware people. I didn't even recognize that as a concept, and it's somehow comforting knowing that I have an outlet for the overwhelming existential dread. I'm looking forward to listening to this. Thank you. There was a, another individual who said, Hi, Corey and Kellen. Wanted to let you know how grateful I am for your podcast and especially the kindness that emanates from it. And then this person went on to explain that they work as a psychologist in a private practice. They said, I've been noticing more and more people talking about their concerns and worries about things to come. Although it's not my place to share my views with them, I realize that this information is so important. And so to me, that that just highlights there's this growing general sentiment that troubling times are ahead and people to some degree or another, recognize that. But there's benefit in knowing that others see the problem as well. So when it comes to coping, I think the reason that we brought this up wasn't to pat ourselves on the back because we got some great reviews or comments. It was to say that one of the best things perhaps that you can do is just make sure that you know and understand there are other people who understand you and the way that you're feeling. Last episode, I brought up the Collapse Support subreddit. I think that is a great place to be able to have conversations with other people who are going through anxieties and perhaps depression from this knowledge, people who can talk about their experiences, you know, just people to listen. There's the collapse discord. It just opens up the world to, like that one reviewer said, this collapse aware community, a group of people who are sort of in the same boat as far as their understanding and, and the difficulty that can come from that. This is not to say that this podcast 
or any podcast talking about collapse is going to improve everyone's mental health. Obviously, for some people, engaging in this conversation, talking about or thinking about collapse at all, is not going to be better for their mental health. It's, it's going to be worse. And that is why, you know, in, in our first episodes, we said, if you struggle with mental health issues, perhaps this is not the podcast for you. For some people, we know that that's still true. But the purpose of this episode is to perhaps be able to talk about some other ways or some other methods that you can use to help cope with this information. Yeah, and I think we've talked about some really powerful principles before when it comes to coping. We've had a few episodes now where we've discussed different models and, and coping techniques and skills. You may recall the Stockdale Paradox, where you need to both recognize the reality of your situation and also have that faith that you'll prevail in the end. We've talked about the mountains of research out there that indicate happiness is more a result of purpose than comfort. And when we say purpose, we're talking about significance and connectedness and belonging. But having an absence of difficulties or a lack of challenges or, or an abundance of comfort isn't necessarily going to bring you happiness. We've talked about how the knowledge of collapse can help you appreciate what you have now. It can help you prepare and have peace of mind. We've talked about how people often come together in times of trial and the evidence out there of post-traumatic growth, right? There's, there's not only post-traumatic stress that comes from traumatic events, but growth and development and so many good things that come from the challenges that we anticipate. We've discussed serving others and taking care of yourself and gratitude. We've talked about the importance of humor and like your own self-narrative, you know, those, those affirmations that allow you to believe things about your own identity and capabilities that help you be more resilient. And, and I'm listing some of these things. There's several more that we've discussed. And I hope if you feel some degree of anxiety or fear about the future that you're practicing these things. But I want to take some time to discuss a few things that we haven't yet talked about. And the first one is something called the hedonic treadmill or... It is sometimes referred to as hedonic adaptation and is defined as the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative events or life challenges. So this, this became a more mainstream idea when there was a study published in 1978 called Lottery Winners and Accident Victims is Happiness Relative. And they did this fascinating study where they looked at people who won the lottery or people who became paraplegic, right? They looked at these as like a really big positive event in somebody's life or a really big negative event in somebody's life. And they wanted to see what impact that had on happiness. And they found that people who won the lottery, they had this like big spike in happiness, but that didn't last very long. After a relatively short period of time, their level of happiness came back down to the same place that it was before they won the lottery. And that's even for people who won the lottery and, and maintained that wealth, right? It wasn't like they went and blew all that money and then they were sad again. They were wealthier than they were before, but that doesn't mean that their happiness level stayed elevated. Right. Their, their material quality of life increased significantly and that gave them a little boost of happiness, but it was short-lived. And they could have been happy people before, and they went back to that. Or they could have been kind of unhappy people before, and they just returned to that baseline. And by the same token, people who were victims of a serious accident became paraplegic. It was this 
very difficult, traumatic trial that significantly decreased their level of happiness. But after a relatively short period of time, it bounced back up to whatever their level of happiness was before. So they call this a baseline of happiness or a happiness set point. And there has been so much research since then that indicates we kind of have this somewhat narrow range that we bounce back and forth within of how happy we are. Sometimes we jump outside of that range, but we're kind of like a rubber band that snaps back to that baseline. I should mention that in all of the research that's come since that point, there has been a lot that has backed up the original findings. There have have been some studies that show there might be a wider range than what was typically thought to be the case, and that we may even have a couple of different set points instead of one single set point. There is a fraction of the population that does see their set point change with major life events. And obviously, there's so many factors. It's determined by the severity of the event and the person's ability to adapt. But with all those caveats, it's clear that we do kind of have this set point in this baseline. Some of that comes from something they call shifting adaptation levels. So it's a shift in what is perceived as a neutral stimulus, but maintains sensitivity to stimulus differences. So basically... Things change in your life and whatever neutral is or, or normal is for you becomes different. You, you adopt a new normal and you can still have ups and downs from whatever that new normal is, but, but we adapt. So if I could sort of summarize, basically what you're saying is we have this baseline of happiness and as our homeostasis, as what is normal for us changes, our happiness might go up and down depending on what's going on, but it tends to to come back and adapt to that baseline. So even though what's normal for us might be changing and becoming more extreme, that baseline of happiness can adjust and and basically stay consistent throughout that as long as we're able to adapt to a degree. Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, you think about recent current events, like when the pandemic hit and people had this big disruption in their life, it caused a major negative impact on mental health. For a lot of people, some of those changes that took place just became the new normal. And it wasn't too long until they were generally speaking about as happy as they were before. Or in the past, it may have been really stressful for people to see a bunch of smoke in the air from wildfires. But as that becomes more normal, it doesn't have such an impact on their happiness or their mental health. And it seems like there's kind of two different things here. One, one thing we're talking about is almost like the, the idea of a frog in a boiling pot of water, which is dangerous for the frog. But I think in a mental health perspective, it, it's almost a good thing. As change is happening really slowly, we're able to adapt to that more simply and our happiness baseline adapts with it as well. Whereas on the other side, you know, if more dramatic things are happening more rapidly, it can cause bigger spikes or valleys in our happiness. But that even with those events or those circumstances, generally, we can snap back to that baseline of happiness. And I know obviously this isn't true for everyone. There are plenty of people who during the pandemic, their mental health worsened and it's still worsened. That's why we're seeing the trend that we're seeing. But it sounds like from what the study is saying, on the average, there is this ability to sort of bounce back. And and I don't know if we're going to cover this today or if, or if perhaps in the future, but it sounds like finding ways to be able to adapt is crucial. Finding ways to be more 
flexible and resilient in your mental health is going to be very important. Yeah, that's exactly it. That adaptability makes it so that regardless of the severity of whatever event takes place, you can maintain that set point or that baseline. Which is the very definition of mental resilience, right? It's the ability to adapt to changes without severe impacts to your mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I had mentioned shifting adaptation levels. We've kind of touched on this already, but there's desensitization, which is just a reduced sensitivity to change. So like if you live in a war zone for an extended period of time, after a while, you're not as shocked or bothered by destruction or by loss or by violence. Like you kind of just become desensitized and you can maintain your baseline, your set point of happiness, even though you're in awful conditions. There's also... Another factor here, it's just called sensitization, which is an increase in pleasure with continuous exposure. So you think about people who are like connoisseurs of wine or of certain foods, and it's like the more they dive into that niche, the more they get pleasure from it. And so that allows people, depending on what the event is and what kind of things they're exposed to, to become desensitized to the negatives and to become more sensitized to the positives, to have those shifting adaptation levels, and again, to be basically as happy in any situation as they are in their current situation, as long as they have the skills and the time to adapt. So what do you say to someone who is unhappy in their current situation, right? To someone who maybe right now, they're not suffering from clinical depression. Maybe they're not having severe anxiety, but they just say, I'm not really happy with with life, with you know my nine to five or my relationships or whatever. And so they're saying, I don't want to stay at this baseline. How does this apply to them? Yeah, I th think there's more books out there on how to be happy than almost anything else. Every, everyone wants to be happier. And although we all have a baseline or a set point that we tend to bounce back to, that's not so concrete that it can't be moved. There are things that we can do proactively to increase that happiness baseline. A lot of those are things that we've already talked about, right? So I recommend going back, listening to those episodes on coping and on mental and emotional resilience because there are certain skills that it does take effort, right? Like becoming more grateful and practicing gratitude, as an example, isn't something that just happens to you. Finding opportunities to help others and get fulfillment from that doesn't just happen to you. You have to put effort into it, but it pays off. So I see some real implications here when it comes to collapse. On one hand, for people who are generally happy and have a good life, but are so scared of the future and what might come from collapse, I'm not saying don't be scared at all. But what I am saying is don't be convinced that that's going to destroy your happiness. If you're able to be happy now, chances are even when life is more difficult, you're still going to be successful at being happy and finding fulfillment. In some ways, there's going to be opportunities for even more fulfillment as you step outside like your nine to five corporate rat race, or as there are more people around you in need that you have the ability to help, but have confidence that if you are successful in being happy now, you can be happy during collapse. Yeah, I really like that because I think a lot of the fears that people have is that they're going to be miserable in the future and that the future is going to be nothing but suffering and, and, and unhappiness, right? And we don't know what the future is going to be like. We don't know, you know, how fast things are going to change, how severely they'll change. All, all of those things are unknowns. But I really like what you're saying, and that's that if you can learn to be happy 
now in your current situation, if you can apply those tools and techniques to allow yourself to be happy, to have a proper baseline of happiness, that you can rest assured that as things change and potentially get more difficult, you'll be able to adapt to that and that your happiness doesn't have to to go down. I've often thought about like, this is just what always comes to mind, like the medieval ages, you know, you think of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail times, you know, when everyone just looks so miserable and everything just looks so cruddy. And I, and I think, were people happy back then? Man, that time period must have sucked, you know? But it makes sense that people were likely just as happy and fulfilled or maybe more happy and fulfilled, maybe less. But overall, there's this baseline of happiness where people are able to enjoy their lives despite the challenges that face them during it. Yeah, even in our current world, there's a whole wealth of research and evidence that points to the fact that in third world countries, usually living conditions are much worse. People aren't having the kind of mental health struggles that we're having in the first world. And there's all sorts of theories as to why, you know, people aren't sure if that's just because they're so busy taking care of their own survival that they don't have time to think about their own happiness or whether they're just used to more difficult things. They have a higher pain tolerance or whether they're not focused on all the superficial things that cause us to get so depressed. You know, there's probably so many reasons it's multifactorial, but yeah, there, there will be more challenges more more pain, more suffering in some aspects of life. And in some cases, we're talking about a potential for severity. But again, I think it's just important for us to understand, if you're happy now, don't be too stressed about the future. You have the skills to be happy in the future. If you are unhappy now, some of that might be outside of your control. Some of that might be genetic. Some of that might be because of your current situation. But you can move that set point. Okay, so this leads to the next thing that I think is so important for us to discuss. It's something you may have heard of before. It's called exposure therapy. And I've got like four different definitions for it here. I'm not sure which one to read because they all basically say the same thing. I'll just pick one. It says exposure therapy is defined as any treatment that encourages the systematic confrontation of feared stimuli, which can be external, like feared objects, activities, situations, or internal, like feared thoughts, or physical sensations. The aim of exposure therapy is to reduce the person's fearful reaction to the stimulus. So this is something that is becoming more common in dealing with anxiety disorders. And it's pretty incredible when you look at the results. So I'll, I'll read from one study that says they examined the effects of single session in vivo exposure that lasts one to three hours for patients with specific phobias. At post-treatment follow-up, after an average of four years, 90% of these patients still had significant reduction in fear, avoidance, and overall level of impairment, and 65% no longer had a specific phobia. In other words, this treatment literally cured people in the majority of cases. So maybe as an example, and this is just anecdotal from my case and was not in a controlled environment like most exposure therapy would be. But I mean, I'm, a, I'm afraid of heights. I always have been. But, you know, I, I was building my home and was nervous to get up on the roof. I was scared I was going to fall off, but I had to shingle it. And so we used these harnesses and man, building, you know, when I started building that house, I relied on that harness. I clung to it, terrified the whole time. And by the time we finished roofing that house, 
it was a nuisance. I wanted to take that harness off because it was in the way. It was holding me back. I felt so much more free when I didn't wear it. And the fear was basically gone. You know, where it was taking me five or 10 minutes to get on or off the ladder the first time. By the end, there wasn't even really a thought about it. And now I've been on several roofs since. Kellen, I helped you re-roof your house. And that fear, at least from the height of a roof, is completely gone. Now you put me up on, you know, five stories and I'm going to be freaking out again, but maybe if I spend enough time there, that fear goes away. Yeah. That's such a perfect example. That's spot on. And like you said, it wasn't done in a controlled environment necessarily. You didn't have a psychologist stepping you through that process, but it's the same idea. There's a couple of ways that they do this. There's what's called graded exposure and there's flooding. With graded exposure, you start with something that you don't fear quite as much and you work your way up to more strongly feared stimuli. So it's a gradual process. That's why it's called graded exposure. With flooding, you start with what you're most afraid of. And and the results of both are effective, but usually the graded approach is what's taken simply because of people's personal comfort levels. There's also two types of this exposure-based therapy One is called imaginal exposure, where basically you're just asked to vividly imagine it, sometimes with the aid of certain sights or sounds or smells or certain prompts or cues. Or on the other hand, there's in vivo exposure, which is like real world exposure. You're actually being exposed to the thing, which is what happened in your example of climbing up on a roof. And there are even developments taking place with virtual reality exposure, which to some degree, is kind of a mixture of the two. So yeah, like a, a spider-phobic, an arachnophobic patient might handle a spider. Or somebody who's afraid of heights, like you mentioned, might be systematically pushed to uh, approach increasing heights on a skyscraper. Or if it's somebody who just has like generalized anxiety, they might purposefully induce worrisome thoughts or a a patient with PTSD might revisit those traumatic memories. You know, it's interesting. I know somebody who has somewhat severe OCD and has been going to treatment for it. And for her, her OCD is centered around like rules and she's obsessive compulsive about rules and she doesn't want to break any rules. And so she is actually given these assignments from her therapist to like sneak into a movie or to litter or or to do something that is kind of against the rules. And as she has done this, it has helped her immensely. Okay. So what does all of this have to do with coping with collapse? Well, there's, there's a couple of answers to that, but one of them is that there is value in vividly imagining what you expect from collapse and stepping through the details of those situations. So a lot of times with something like collapse, people could have all this panic around it. They could feel really anxious. They're scared of the future. And I want to relate it to a very different anxiety So I've mentioned that my oldest son struggles with some anxieties and it's not anything super severe, but it's more extreme than most kids his age. My wife and I went to this thing at a local high school where a therapist had invited all the parents in the community to come and learn about ways that they could help their children improve their mental health. So we thought, hey, let's go learn what we can from this. He used several examples, but one of them was Like, let's say you have a kid who it's their first day in a new class 
and they are super anxious about it. They're nervous. They're scared. They don't want to go because they're afraid that they won't know anybody and they won't have any friends. The typical response to that is for a parent to say, oh no, don't worry. You'll definitely make lots of friends. And this therapist, I thought it was really wise. He was saying, don't say that. Like, don't lie to them. You don't know if they'll make friends or not. Instead, help them mentally step through those fears and step towards them. So when the child says, I don't know anybody and I don't have any friends and I'm scared, you can ask them like, okay, what happens if when you go into your class, none of your friends are there? And they might say, well, then I'll feel sad. And you can follow up by asking, okay, well, let's say you're in the class and your friends aren't there and you're feeling sad. What's going to happen? And we don't need to step through all the different layers of questions you can ask. But in most cases, this therapist talked about how a kid will get to the point where they're saying, well, I've, I've done that before and I was able to make friends in the past, or I I can at least try this or I can do this. And that anxiety starts to melt away. And by the way, I'm obviously no psychologist, right? But from my understanding, stepping through all the details and really thinking that through takes away the unknown to a large degree. It's not just this nameless fear that's out there, this general anxiety. You've already approached it. You've already at least mentally experienced it. And you can then move forward with preparing yourself and your family to try to mitigate that potential outcome. And to some degree or another, that can help you reduce your anxieties, live in the present, and not have it be this oversized fear, which is what anxiety typically is. Yeah, I like that. And it mirrors a lot of what we kind of talked about hearing from reviews and comments and stuff from people is saying, you've taken this big, vague fear that I have about the fact that the world is messed up and we're headed down this bad direction, but I never really knew what that was or what that meant. And you've organized it out for me so that I can see here are the problems before us. And that's helped calm my anxieties, right? And you're saying the same thing here. If I have this severe anxiety about the future, about collapse. Maybe I understand all the mechanics behind why we're going to collapse, but perhaps my anxieties are coming from not understanding all the possible consequences of what my future actually look like. And then you just described walking yourself through all these different scenarios and being willing to look at the worst case scenarios, confronting those and actually visualizing what that is and and figuring out why, why you're so afraid of it. And By doing so, you may learn that you're not so afraid of it, or at least not anxious about it. Now, I don't know if this is a practice or activity that is necessarily recommended that you do if you don't have anxieties about the future. I mean, it's good to always play out scenarios, for example, when you're preparing, right? To know what you're preparing for, to to see what's the most realistic outcomes and and see where your vulnerabilities are. But if you're in a, a decent place mentally, I don't know that it helps to dwell on perhaps all the worst possible case scenarios. What we're saying is if you have this vague anxiety about the future and it's a future that maybe you don't fully understand because you're scared to look at it, don't be afraid to look at it and and expose yourself, right, to this exposure therapy to what the future is. And I think we got to just emphasize it again. Kellen and I are not psychologists. We're not therapists. These are things that we've learned about and there are studies that show that they help. But the best thing you can do, especially if this is a, type of anxiety that you have is speak with a therapist, a professional who can help you go down that path and discover where your anxieties lie and how you can overcome them. Yeah. And I'm so glad you say that because I'm just trying to convey that there, 
is value in allowing yourself to approach whatever you're so scared about and identify why you're so scared about it. Step through the motions of what that would really mean and what the implications are. And usually that's going to help reduce those anxieties. You're scared of a snake. You've got so many reasons why and so much background and baggage and history and fears of what might happen. And then you hold a snake and it's terrifying. But the longer you allow yourself to sit there holding the snake, the more your mind adapts and realizes it's okay. And maybe these fears are unfounded and you can get back to a rational level of caution. And I don't think what Kellen and I are trying to say is that collapse isn't going to be bad, right? Or that there won't be suffering, that many people won't die. Of course, all of that is likely to, to happen during collapse. You know, I grew up with a lot of fears as a kid. I was always scared of the dark. And I remember lying in bed, you know, crying, thinking that someone was going to come in and murder me. And the only way I could get myself to calm down was to say, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to die. And it's kind of a sad thing for a kid to tell himself. But that was how I, that was how I overcame that anxiety and would fall asleep every night. I would face the wall and I'd just lay there and say, what if there's, what if there's a guy behind me? What if there's someone coming in my door right now? Okay. What do you, you can't beat him. He's going to kill you. So just lay here and go to sleep. And if it happens, it happens, right? Um, but I think in the end, it's just this idea for me, what helped me in those moments was just understanding that we can't control everything. We all die, collapse or not. At some point, we're going to die. A lot of people have a fear of that, right? And, and maybe that's your fear. Maybe you're not afraid of collapse. Maybe you're just afraid of dying. But if we accept that that's the worst that's going to happen, right? And we come to terms with that. And then we take your principle about happiness and how... Studies show that our happiness adapts even through hard times and we have that baseline of happiness that we can stay at. To me, that makes me just feel like, well, great, we can live the rest of our lives. I can live the rest of my life, however long that might be, happily. And when it's time to go, it's time to go. Whether that's because something regarding collapse took me or whether it's because I get hit by a bus tomorrow or whether it's because I live to 85 and die in my sleep. But I'm not doing myself any favors by constantly fretting about what that moment will be or when. Yeah, if I can give one more example, I love what you shared about like as a kid, you you were able to say, what's the worst that could happen? You play that through in your mind and then you're like, okay, well, if it happens, it happens. That's outside of my control. You You were able to confront that fear and recognize what the fear was. I have an older brother who looking back, I think he had some pretty severe anxieties. But I remember when he was going through college, he had an internship, he was trying to establish his career, and he would just get so anxious about it. He was so worried about whether he was performing well at his job and whether he was on the right path. And he had this kind of mantra, or I guess just thing that he would repeat to himself. He would just say, 7-Eleven, 7-Eleven. And I was like, why are you saying 7-Eleven? And it's because at the time there was a local 7-Eleven gas station near our house. And he had decided, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like if my college degree ends up not benefiting me at all, and if I do terrible at this internship, and if this happens and that happens and worst case scenario, he's like, even if all the worst things happen, I'm, I'm confident I could get a job at 7-Eleven. And he's like, if I worked at 7-Eleven, I could still choose to be happy. Like, yeah, it wouldn't be ideal. I wouldn't necessarily love the work, but it wouldn't be terrible. Like I'd, I'd get through it and I could still find ways to be happy. And so that first principle of our set point, our happiness baseline, realizing like whatever comes, we can still be happy. And then coupling that 
with this kind of exposure therapy where we let ourselves think through and visualize what collapse could look like in a variety of different situations, but even letting ourselves go to the deep, dark places of the worst case scenario of collapse and saying, hey, even in that situation, I'm still going to choose to be a good person. Like, I'm not going to murder anybody for their food. I'm going to hold to my values. There's a chance that there could be a period of really intense suffering. Can I still choose in that situation to be true to myself and even to some degree or another find purpose or to help somebody else or to be happy? Yeah, you can make those decisions for yourself now. And hopefully that will help reduce the fears and anxieties you have. Yeah, this is all stuff that like I've never really thought about concretely. Right, I've never systematized it. I've never categorized it. You've done that here, but I look back on my life and realize I've been using a lot of these things for myself, and I and I feel that they've worked. And I now have a better idea of how to use them as anxieties come in the future. These conversations are hard because everybody comes from a different place. Everybody's at a different spot regarding their current level of happiness, regarding the anxieties that they have or don't have about the future. Some of you may be listening to this and are completely devoid of emotion regarding what's going to come, right? Some of you may be listening to this and may be entirely crippled by it. I'm going to reiterate again here, if you are suffering anxiety or depression, seek professional help. Do not count on Kellen or I as your professionals. We are not. Do the work now to build mental resilience, to increase your baseline of happiness, to increase your adaptability so that as we go through tougher times... That baseline of happiness can remain. If you feel that it helps with anxieties, find ways to prepare for the future. Learn to provide for yourself. Become more self-sustainable. All of those things help. The more prepared I feel, the more self-sustainable I feel, the smaller the chances of those worst-case scenarios and my fears becoming reality. Yeah, and I feel like we have an opportunity as this kind of collapse-aware community to help one another not only now as we kind of cope with it, but in the future as we deal with the challenges that are coming our way. So kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, know that you're not alone. There are other like-minded people who you can connect with, who you can know have some of the same anxieties. And I think collectively we can find ways to help each other build that resilience and kind of face these challenges head on. The future may include difficulties and, and suffering, but that's been the case throughout all history. People have gone through all sorts of hard times. Like I wouldn't want to live during the time when people were facing the Great Depression and World War II. And yet so many people throughout really difficult challenges lived wonderful lives, experienced happiness and fulfillment and purpose. And I'm confident that we can do that and we can help each other to do that now and in the years to come. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.